From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. On our last show, we talked about 250 SEC titles for the athletic program, but now we're moving into NCAA championship season, with both gymnastics and volleyball heading to the final destinations for their sport's top prize. On today's show, we'll convene FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss baseball's midweek walk-off against FSU, The challenge is ahead for gymnastics in Fort Worth, a new yet familiar leader for the women's swim and dive team, and a PAT reflecting on the most talented athletes we've ever had the chance to see with our own two eyes. Then, volleyball coach Mary Wise joins us to talk about their unprecedented split season, the advantages and disadvantages of an all-SEC schedule, and what it will take for the program to win its first national title in Omaha. But first, if you like roller coasters, this baseball season is for you. The preseason number one squad has had a dizzying ride with highs and lows. But as Scott somewhat obviously stated to open our roundtable, the dramatic win over the Seminoles is likely the biggest peak yet. Yeah, Adam, I mean, this is a baseball team that entered the season number one unanimous in all the polls. And so expectations were high and and that, you know, they they played okay, but they haven't been dominant by any stretch of the imagination. And they got swept to South Carolina, and I think that sent off some alarm alarms with the segment of the fan base. And yet, you know, you look at what they've done since then, or these last couple of games especially, Adam, uh, a Sunday win at Tennessee, then coming home, as you said, beating Florida State on a walk-off home run by Kendrick Callalow. Look, I mean, it's a long season, and – and there's going to be ups and downs, but right now I think we can safely say that's the that's the highest up that this team has uh, enjoyed in 2021. And anytime you beat FSU, it's a it's a good night for Florida. But to do it in that fashion, and, and again, you saw the reaction of the players and and the team, the coaches after it happened. It was a big moment. Uh, they needed something like that. And again, I don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, they could come back and lose. Friday night to Missouri, but Kevin O'Sullivan said, you know, he hopes this is a, a turning point where they can get on a run and play like they're capable of, which they have the last couple of games. And what does that look like? Well, it's, it's, for this team, it looks like, you know, the getting dominant pitching at different stages of each game. I mean, up in Tennessee on Sunday, it was Christian Scott coming out of the bullpen, having a great outing. And then on Tuesday against Florida State, you had uh, Garrett Milchin, uh, career high, Six innings, his best start of his career. And then Jack Lepwich, who had been under the microscope so much, really, since being moved out of the uh, starting rotation. And he had a real tough outing, what was it, Saturday at Tennessee. He comes in. and This is a guy who, he's, you know, he's got a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, great breaking ball. He comes in in a tough spot in Tennessee, throws eight pitches, every one a ball, two walks. Sully comes out and gets him out of the game. So that's something that really you just wonder where is Jack Leftwich going to go from here because for Florida to be the team that most people think they, they can be, he's got to be a big part of that. And Sure enough, they call on him against Florida State. He comes in and pitches the final four innings, and he looked as good as I've ever seen him. He faced 13 batters, retired 12 of them, walked one, struck out seven, and his pitches were just zipping all over the plate. So – uh, a big night for uh, the Gators, and uh, the big question now, Adam, what do they do with this? Uh, can they keep it up and play like they have the last couple of games? Because I think if they have a stretch of uh, on their schedule where they're playing some of the second-tier teams in the league. So they have it, so uh, their schedule looks very favorable right now if they can get on a run with the kind of talent they have. Uh, this team is capable of, you know, winning a lot of games in a, in a row, and Sully's message to them after Sunday's win up in Knoxville uh, was, hey, guys, you know, I know we've been on a roller coaster ride here. We still have very high expectations. 2017 team, 
that won a national title after 12 games in the conference. We were only six and six. And guess what? That's where we are right now. So he kind of uh, he kind of stressed that message to these guys to, to let them know that there's still a, a lot of goals that they can accomplish if they if they can get going. Yeah, and you know, they're trying to make sure they've got a, a solid seed when it comes to tournament time, which is going to be different this year. Uh, the NCAA recently said for baseball and for softball, the regional and super regional sites will be predetermined. Now, Florida has put in to host both of those, uh, but this is not a, you know, again, it's not a normal year. So being a top 16, a top eight doesn't necessarily mean what it would have in years past, which is another wrinkle to put on this this COVID unique season that we're talking about. Yeah, that was one of those announcements that certainly created opinion uh, around the country. Uh, you look at the Gators, Adam, and, you know, on merit, they, they're in position where, you know, they still have a, a really good opportunity to host a regional if they can play it out. But now, you got to consider some other factors that aren't usually in play. But even with those factors, I think as long as this team has a, a pretty good season and comes close to being what they're doing now, I mean, you got to look at a new ballpark, uh, plenty of hotels here. Obviously, with the COVID being the number one criterion, the ability to host the regional, I think Florida is in good position there. Obviously, Shans is basically less than a mile from the stadium or two miles. I mean, so you've got a lot of things with UF health there, a lot of resources. Uh, so it looks, it looks favorable. Obviously they'll bid to, to host a regional. The only thing I can really think that would knock them out entirely was if there's just some teams that people are kind of caught by surprise who are doing so well and deserve one and also have similar resources or the Gators go in the tank or something down the stretch here. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. I, I do feel though, uh, it's going to be something that each weekend you, you kind of there'll be a measuring stick. Okay, where are they in that conversation right now? So it's something to keep an eye on. So baseball hoping to stay hot. Uh, another team that needs to get hot right about now is gymnastics. And Scott, uh, you know this is this is the moment for them. They've reached the end of the road. Uh, they've made it to the NCAA championships, but they're not quite competing the way they were earlier in the season. Uh, injuries have played a, a big role in that. But as they get ready for this challenge to try and win the first national title under Jenny Rowland, um, also you have to think about last year and how close they came to doing it before COVID shut it down. So it's almost like, yeah, this is uh, a chance to kind of close the loop for this year and for last year. Yeah, well, you know, before we talk about this year's team, let's let's do go back a little bit, Adam, to, you know, 2020. And again, it was a team that had similar expectations of this team. They cruised through the regular season uh, undefeated in the SEC. Uh, they were the favorite to win the title unquestionably last year. And then COVID struck and, you know, they, they missed out on that opportunity. But one of the, the elements of that team is, you know, you had four, four uh, gymnasts who their career just ended after a practice one day. And they were not expecting that, obviously. And I'm talking about uh, Sierra Alexander was one of them, Rachel Gowie, and then Megan Chant, and Amelia Hunley, who, uh, you know, those four, they were all part of that team that expected to uh, really win that national title last year. And uh, they were left their careers over uh, just like that. And so, you know, catching up with them, this year's team included them in, they dedicated the season to the four. They came up with a hashtag that kind of paid uh, tribute to the four. And I, you know, talking to all four of them this week, Adam, it, it was obvious that they were all appreciative of what this year's team uh, has done and how much it reminds them of where they were last year at this time, uh, thinking about, you know, competing and winning a title. And, you know, you could tell a couple of them have moved on pretty quickly. Sierra Alexander, for instance, she, she said that, you know, she, she moved past it pretty well. They all stayed in Gainesville for a few months, you know, through the summer after the season ended and dealing with COVID. But then they started to go their own ways. Uh, Rachel Gowie's now in Iowa, where she's from. She's in school to be a chiropractor. Sierra Alexander is in South Florida and Fort Lauderdale, but she's getting ready to, uh, moved to Washington State and go to school and study creative writing. And then um, Megan Chant yeah, is back home in Canada, so she's had to deal with COVID even on a more, uh, uh, I guess, a different scale than we have because they've really been locked down. So 
she hasn't been in school or anything, but she's getting ready to go to nursing school and, and pursue that career. And then, of course, Amelia Hunley is the one who has stayed closest to the program because she uh, is a, kind of a volunteer assistant coach, uh, has been involved with the team all year. She will obviously be in Texas with the Gators. And Rachel Gowie said she planned to come down uh, from Iowa to take it in. So they all have different stories. The, the one common, two common themes were they really think this team can do it. And they all, they all have kind of bittersweet memories of how last year ended, but they all are really behind this team and, and have stayed connected to, to their former teammates and coaches as close as they could. And, and then you look at this team, Adam, uh, they've had some hurdles this year that they didn't have last year. I mean, mostly injuries uh, with Trinity Thomas is the big storyline. Is she a hundred percent down in Texas? That's the question. I know the Gators they're hoping for it to be. I think if she is that, you know, it won't be a surprise that Florida wins it. But these these events, uh, you know, I've been around them long enough. The favorite team doesn't always win because it's a different stage, just like all these sports. Uh, there's different pressure. Uh, these are, I mean, it's a bigger event than ever. The, the, the finals, I think, are going to be live on uh, either ABC or one of the national networks. Really? Wow. Yeah, I, you know, I need to look that up to confirm. I, I know that it's the exposure is more than ever for the sport. And uh, so can the Gators do it? Yes, they're going to have to be at the top of their game over because we've seen them battle some uh, injuries and some missteps here in the latter stage of the season. And uh, it doesn't get any bigger than this. So uh, uh, it's going to be interesting. But if they win it, be what the first title since 2015 and Jenny Rowland will have uh, have her first one as the Florida head coach so we'll be watching them very closely as well as volleyball uh, and what they do in uh, in Omaha Mary Wise said she hopes to be there as long as uh, as Sully is in most years so we'll be tracking that as well more to come from her later in this episode uh, I want to quickly talk about swimming and diving. It's not a sport we have a chance to cover a lot on this show, uh, but big news this week in that Anthony Nesty has kind of, uh, he has reunited the programs, right? So Greg Troy led everything for a long time. He left. They split the programs, the men's and the women's side. Now they have reunified under Anthony Nesty. Uh, tell us about this latest news and what it means for the program. Well, yeah, what happened was Jeff Popple, who had taken over as the women's coach, Scott Strickland kind of, split up the programs after Troy left. He, Jeff Popple coached the women. Uh, Anthony Nesty, a longtime assistant and associate head coach of Troy, took over to men. Obviously swam at Florida, former Olympic uh, performer. So, you know, Gator fans are pretty familiar with him. Uh, so Popple gets hired at South Carolina uh, last week. He gonna, he's taken over both programs up there. So they say, Anthony, you've done such a good job with the men. Uh, we're going to name you the head coach to both uh, programs. So it's kind of going back to the way it was under under Troy. And, of course, Nesty was named SEC Coach of the Year uh, this week of, what, nine straight SEC titles now for the men's program. Uh, I think the last three under him. And Popple had done a really nice job with the women. They had been kind of, you know, mid-level SEC before he came in and took over. And they've got three consecutive second-place finishes in the conference. So, uh, you know, I think it's just it's just a way of, you know, taking a guy who's familiar with both programs and and letting him uh, put his touch on the uh, the women's program. And we'll see how it goes. But Nesty is really, really well respected in the in the swimming community, and he's a he's a Gator. Uh, Scott Strickland uh, decided to uh, go that route, and uh, congrats to Anthony. As somebody who covered Florida going back to 1990, he was a swimmer here in 1990, and he did represent the country of Suriname and right. won the 100 butterfly in the 92 Olympics. I remember writing about him then. So, I mean, this is a guy, like Scott said, he's a gator. He's got pedigree. Um, everyone knows who he is. Uh, it, it was a slam dunk choice, I would think to roll him over as the, as the women's coach. And I, I imagine he's going to do a really good job there. I'm happy for him. And I, I, I know he lo- he loves it here and he loves, he loves being a Gator and he'll, he'll, uh, I mean, just spread the brand out to the other gender. He'll be great at it. I think. While we're talking about uh, excellence, that leads us to this week's PAT. 
which was inspired by, well, two things. A conversation I had with my cousin, uh, who I'll throw under the bus here because he's a UGA fan and he's not going to listen to this anyway. Uh, but he he's one of those people that tends to get uh, a little exci- overexcited maybe about events. So I don't know if you guys have followed the Braves. I know Scott does. Uh, but Ronald Acuna has had this incredible start to the year. He's hitting almost 500. And my cousin declared, I think he's the most talented athlete I've ever seen live. So that happened. And then I read an article on ESPN.com yesterday about Kyle Pitts and talking about his talent level being almost unparalleled. Like they can't even think of another player to compare him to because of how unique of an athlete he is. So that led me to this question I will now give to to both of you. Who is the most talented athlete you have ever seen live? Maybe it's multiples, but I'm not sure if... In, in the way that my cousin is convinced he has seen the light, I'm curious what you guys have for this. Well, um, I mean, this, this, one of the things when you start talking a question like, sir, are, you, are we talking about pure athletes? Are we talking about players in their, in their respective sport or something? Because, I mean, we could sit here and have a conversation. You gave me that. I was just thinking about, you know, just in the last, last 20 years, you can talk about Mike Trout or Kobe Bryant or – Tom Brady or Alexander Ovechkin or something like just like those are guys that I've seen, but I also saw Bo Jackson live, um, just playing baseball. I I don't think I ever saw him live uh, playing football. Um, I mean, I I saw Michael Jordan score fifty three points live in, in the in the Orlando Arena, and the year he played for the Wizards. I lived in Tampa. My daughter was ten. I put her in the car, drove her drove her over so she could say she saw Michael Jordan play, even though he scored like 12 points in a game, mm. but you, she did get to see 40 year old Michael Jordan playing basketball. So she can say that, which, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but I, I think one of the things, and, and Scott is somebody who's, who's getting, getting up there a little, get a little longer in tooth. <laughs> He's nowhere near where I am, but I think, <laughs> I think the older you get, the more you can lean back to say this guy, I saw this guy, I saw this guy. I mean, I actually saw Vince Lombardi coach a game one time. So, um, uh, I, that's probably the, you know, I didn't see Newt Rockney, uh, uh, but I, I did see Vince Lombardi, but I, I went to the 69 all-star game. Okay. And I just Googled the lineups for him. And some people listening to this aren't, aren't going to know these names, but you guys, I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to read off some names. These guys all played in that game. Maddie Alou, Rod Carew, Reggie Jackson, Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, Willie McCovey, uh, Sal Bando, Steve Carlton, Mel Stoudemire, Bill Freehand, uh, uh, Denny McLean, Blue Moon Odom, Johnny Bench, Harmon Killebrew, Davey Johnson, Brooks Robinson, uh, Jim Fergosi, uh, Tony Oliva, and Carl Yastrzemski. So, and that, and I think that's the American League I just went down. Wow. Um, uh, just <laughs> most of Juan Marichal. I'm going. Bob Gibson was in the game. Uh, Ernie Banks. Tony Perez, Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, Pete Rose. Uh, so, I mean, like I said, you, you'll go through, you'll have these moments where you, you'll think back, I saw this person play, and it wasn't that, you know, I saw Kobe Bryant uh, score, what, 40 points in an NBA final, and that's something 20 years from now, I'll say, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe he was the greatest athlete I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll all have that as we, as we go through life. But um, to, to put a finger on it, um, I, I saw Jerry Rice a bunch in his prime. Uh, you could probably make a case for him. Um, but, I mean, a pure athlete, I mean, I saw, I saw Bo Jackson play, you know, what, left field, center field for one game in Baltimore one time. Um, you know, maybe he is the greatest athlete I ever saw live, but it didn't show up that day. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I don't think it has to. O- over the course of time, you start you start thinking about, I mean, saw Tom Brady a bunch. Saw, you know uh, – I saw Kyle Ripken play. Scott, yeah. you got a ton of guys you can start naming, right? Yeah, I've got to echo a lot of what Chris said here, Adam, is, you know, you do start to, uh, if you do this and you are a big sports fan or you're you're working in sports or uh, covering sports, I mean, it's just natural. You're going to see a lot of great athletes. I mean, you could just sit here and say, okay, at Florida, just in this little, you know, this little world alone, the University of Florida, I mean, think of how many good athletes we've mm-hmm. seen. Uh, from Joe Kim Noah and Al Horford to Grant Holloway. Uh, yeah, Grant Caleb Holloway. Dressel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caleb Dressel. Yeah. Chris sort of hit on this. I think what I'm saying is more 
generational talent, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, Tom Brady is an incredible quarterback. I don't know if you could say he is one of the most talented or gifted athletes that that's you've right. ever seen, right? right? I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to, in my experience, I mean, I was around baseball so much and I still, and I, I know I've probably said this on the, before, but I just never seen a talent like Josh Hamilton when I first saw him. Hmm. And, you know, he, his career didn't pan out because he had a lot of personal baggage, but to do what he did with his personal baggage, that, that speaks to the immense natural talent he had. Uh, because mm. a lot of guys would have never resurfaced after going through what he did before he ever made the majors. I mean, I just I, I've never seen a an athlete I don't think like that as a 19 year old. Think to myself, my gosh, I'm a, this must be what it like was when Mickey Mantle first arrived or Willie Mays. That's the kind of thinking that people who were watching Josh Hamilton had, and I'm sure they said the same thing about Chris's guy, Bo Jackson. I mean, he's you know, if you say, okay, who's the greatest athlete of the 20th century, just pure athlete, I mean, Bo Jackson's going to be on that list with guys like Jim Thorpe, and uh, I'm sure I'm missing some others. I mean, the sprinter, uh, what's his name? Uh, Carl Jesse Lewis. Owens, Carl, Carl Lewis. So, I mean, there's all these great – but I think just from – if I had to pick one, I mean, I got to go with Jordan. I remember – and it was a kind of a – I lucked out to even be able to see him because I never saw him. Uh, but one time, actually two games, but one instance, it was my first paper out of college and the Magic were playing the Bulls in the 1995 NBA Eastern Conference Finals. And it was the year that Jordan had just come back from retirement. So he wasn't even in his prime condition because he'd been playing baseball. But I remember somehow I applied for credentials and they gave my little paper in Brooksville, Florida credentials for games i guess they were either one and two or three no they, they would have been the first two games of the series because the magic that was the year they actually knocked the bulls out and then the next year the bulls came back and went three more uh but this was 95 and the bulls or the magic went on to lose to the uh rockets in the finals but getting to that point i mean seeing michael jordan because at that time you know i was in my mid-20s he was already well established as the greatest nba player and here he was back. So that's a memory that will always stand out. I couldn't tell you if they won or lost today that game. I couldn't tell you how many points he scored like Chris can in that game. He saw, but I mean, it's Michael Jordan. He's I mean, as big as LeBron James is today, I still think Michael Jordan was bigger in his prime because he was the professional athlete at his time that dominated the conversation and media. He was just a man. I actually got had a, a – they gave me the pink wristband to cover Bay Hill one time, which got you under the ropes. And I followed Tiger Woods all around the, the you know, being able oh, yeah. to walk next to him. He could probably play some other sports. So, I mean, we were talking about that. But it, it's funny that you when you were mentioned – and I, we talk about Bojack. We don't talk about this guy a lot in terms of athlete. He was certainly – he's in the Hall of Fame in football. And I know Deion Sanders wasn't as good as Bo Jackson in baseball, but he did do both at the same time, for God's sakes, yes, including yes. – he played played in an NFL game and in the World Series in the same weekend. Is that am I not mistaken or something like that? Same day. Same day. Wow. Same 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 day. And I also saw him run in a track meet here at Florida Field. Um, and he, he won. He didn't run the anchor for FSU because they had some other fast dudes on that team. But uh, uh, to see uh, him run the third leg of the four by one or something was something to behold. Also, because obviously that man could fly. I thought about what you said, Chris. You sort of went down the roster. Um, and it made me look at, so I was at the 2003 NBA all-star game and I've just pulled it up now. I couldn't remember. So this is the year before LeBron, but this was Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan, Tracy McGrady, Vince Carter, Jason Kidd, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki. I mean, Shaq, Shaq was there. Yeah, Shaq, Shaq's at the bottom of the list. Um, I mean, that's 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 uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, right there. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. It is cool when you go to events like that and you look back on it and you're like, oh wow, I I can't believe. Up until this moment, when I looked at it, I forgot that I had seen all of those guys play. You know, I think the best advice we can give anybody out there: go to an All Star game, (laughs) game, knock them all out. (laughs) (laughs) If you can get tickets, go to one. 
Just yeah, go to yeah. an all-star game, and then you can save scene everybody of that generation. It's true. Um, well, that was good. I'm, I'm glad we, we unearthed some some gems there. You never know week to week what we're going to get. So thank you guys for, for bringing it for the PAT. Uh, and as always, I'll remind our listeners to check you guys out at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris on Twitter, and the content on FloridaGators.com. You heard little little bites of it earlier, but obviously really good stories going up about gymnastics, about softball this week, and more to come. Hopefully basketball we can talk about next week is what we're hoping for. Uh, but until then... Thank you guys very much, and uh, have a good one, okay? Thanks, Adam. When you've been coaching for over 30 years in one place, one can certainly imagine an old hat approach setting in. But no amount of experience could have prepared Mary Wise for this season, which was split into fall and spring segments and featured only SEC opponents all played on consecutive days, among other quirks. Just as we saw with basketball, the entire NCAA tournament field has been sent to one place. So as the Gators prepare to compete in an unprecedented spring volleyball championship, we began our chat with Coach Wise by asking how confident she was there would even be a season as of last summer. Um, Not very confident at all. Uh, When I think about where we were a year ago, Um, as volleyball coaches in the SEC, we were talking on a weekly basis, um, one of the good things that came out of it. And at that time, you know, with all the spring sports canceling their championships, it was clear that it was not going to be the three-week shutdown that we initially thought. Um, There was a while there that we wondered if we'd even be playing in the fall. Mm. When you found out you would be able to play, but it was going to be under you know much different circumstances, what were you able to do to prepare, right? Because I know coaches, especially when you've been doing it a long time, you've got a regiment, you've got a, you know you have a, a schedule you follow. How did you adapt to having so much uncertainty as you prepared for the year? Kind of had to embrace the uncertainty that uh, we looked at. It is that each, you know, don't plan more than about two weeks out because you just wouldn't know. I think one of the things that happened early on is when the NCAA uh, chose to move the volleyball championships to the spring. Mm-hmm. And that was number one that um, to have like, okay, at least that's out there. But honestly, I think the most important thing was when the, when the NCAA said that we, the players could get this year back. Because I think we would have had in our sport, and I, I can only speak for volleyball, but I think we would have had a lot of athletes opt out if they thought that playing in this pandemic with all the uncertainty and all cost them a year of eligibility, they would have said no. But the NCAA, and I think that was incredibly insightful of them and make, making that decision, give them a year back. And mm-hmm. so then, then we had to make all sorts of changes to exactly, as you said, we're used to this routine. I could tell you, you know, but 30 years, you get a right. chance to work out some <laughs> of the things, even though every year is different. Mm. Um, but planning when you don't know what the next week is going to look like, um, that was a very, very different operation. You know, one of the things I've asked uh, a lot of coaches I've talked to in, in the last, uh, I guess this point, six or seven months is what has surprised them? Because surely there were certain things you expected, like you knew, okay, we're going to have to do testing a lot and that'll take time. And, you know, that'll we'll have to build that in, into a schedule. But what has come up that you've had to deal with that, that you couldn't have anticipated before? Um, Honestly, I think I wasn't ready to be an epidemiologist, <laughs> meaning we were following the protocol and, and so grateful that the SEC and and the, the league took the advice of the physicians and doctors and scientists around the league to come up with the protocol. And so they cre- helped us create many, many of uh, uh, parts of it. But the day-to-day, the, what we were doing in our own gym, that fell on on our staff, how we were going to do team travel, because there were some rules that were non-negotiables that we had to follow. But then there were others that that was up to us. Mm-hmm. And and I, in the fall, I felt like, you know, all credit to our trainer who, who I said has done the job, you know, two full time jobs, the athletic trainer for volleyball, but also a, a COVID specialist on just protocols, how to, 
to um, mitigate exposure. And I felt like in the fall, I honestly, I, I don't, didn't do nearly as good a job coaching because I, I look back on it. This was during the break and realized I was spending way too much of my time just trying to figure out the protocols for keeping the players safe and, and, and creating the rules and policy procedures. It was no one's fault. We had mm -hmm. no one. You know, we were the first indoor sport. We were the first high-risk indoor sport to play. So we couldn't even look at basketball and go, well, how did they do it? Right. I mean, we were making it up on the fly and it took, uh, that meant I was spending hours and meet, uh, meetings and phone calls and Zoom calls and nothing to do with our side out offense. <laughs> it had to do with this. And so when we came back in January, I said, we know how to do this. We know how to keep the players safe. I'm not going to spend any more energies on that. We'll just do what we're what we need to do now let me spend the energy on making the team better. And that really was the difference. I feel like it made me a lot happier, probably made the players a lot happier. <laughs> when I, you sort of just touched on a few of them, but I'm curious as, as you look back on everything you've gone through this year, um, what was the most challenging hurdle to clear when it came to these new and unprecedented challenges you had to face? I think it was that every day when the phone rang, you just didn't know who was going to be traced. We were very, very blessed and fortunate that the only cases we had were after the summer and right after, meaning when the players came back. Mm -hmm. And and that, I mean, they, they were exposed and to things outside of our environment and, and that we were very fortunate that way, but you just, it was the tracing. You didn't, you know, that could be a roommate. That could be this situation. You, you just kind of hope, fingers crossed, who's going to be at practice today? <laughs> um, we have practices with half the team um, because of tracing and things that just popped up. You just weren't used to. And that's on top of regular volleyball injuries that occur. And that's what I mean. Our athletic trainer did the job two full-time jobs this year. When it came out in terms of the schedule that it was going to be SEC only, um, you know, so much of what you guys do early in the season is built around playing, you know, top five teams from all over the country and kind of, you know, establishing that baseline for where you are in the national picture. What impact do you feel that it had not having that as you normally would? I think it, it, it was huge for us as we were, even though we had a number of returning players, but we're also starting, you know, we graduated our starting libero and our M in our M1 and Rachel Kramer. And so, you know, that those were in Allie Gregory, our, our starting libero, those were two huge pieces. And in the preseason, you get to chance to, to work with different lineups and you get experience and you give experience to your freshmen because there's enough matches. You got to play everybody. And so we walk into the SEC figuring it out for the first time. And, and we realized after, you know, we had a bad week. We had a, that week where we lost on a, on, um, at the end of the weekend at South Carolina and then came back a few days later and lost to Georgia at home. That was a rough week and realized we had to make some changes and that the offense we were trying to run, it was probably a little bit too fast to, to our ball control level. And, we the break came at a per, at a perfect time those are things you'd figure out in the pre-conference um with as you said the likes of the competition that we were slated to play we were supposed to play at stanford we had minnesota at home we baylor we had you know three of the top teams in the country including the defending national champions that we were going to get to play and find, work through some things and have weaknesses exposed before we entered the SEC. And that that wasn't the case. Playing SEC only was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I look at, this is what I think, Adam, the athletes in, in not just the SEC, but there were four volleyball pro, uh, conferences that played in the fall. The ACC, the Big 12, the Sun Belt, and the SEC. And I maintain that those athletes did such an incredible job without, without the benefit of watching what other high-risk indoor sports and how they figured it out. They were the first sport and had those athletes 
not gone into conservative, protective, following the rules and wearing masks and socially distanced and everything they did to play. If they hadn't done such a good job, I maintain that the start of basketball would have looked very different. I Meaning if, if we had teams that were shut down and outbreaks and people who gotten very sick, basketball would not have started the way it did. And yet, you know, we were the only four, only four conferences played and those athletes deserve a whole lot of credit. Yeah, and, and I have a, a few questions about kind of the structure of, of this year, but one of them is what you just said, the decision to play the split season with essentially almost like a, uh, I don't know, like a, like a preview run in, in October, November, and then starting two months later. What challenges has that created? And, and was that the right call to split the schedule the way that the SEC did? Yeah, we'll find out, you know, we have <laughs> in, uh, you know, the, because we're all, we are all judged on how we do in the NCAA tournament it, mm. and, you know, right or wrong. That's just the way it is. And we have in Kentucky, the number two overall seat. I've said this from the beginning because Kentucky returned all of the right critical positions and they have the best setter in the country. They had a chance to win it all. And, and if, if Kentucky wins it all, or Florida wins it all. We're going to say that the SEC definitely did the right thing by playing <laughs> both in the fall and and in the spring. Or we could ar- argue maybe, you know, if Texas wins it all, because that's how we are judged. I think that our teams playing in the fall provided the template for everybody else. Okay, mm-hmm. this is how, how you do it, how you keep your players safe. Um, we Changes that we made, we gave more days off because we were so concerned. We've never coached, had a uh, start in August and finished in April. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we did get that significant break in between, but that's a long season. And we missed the spring where we have a chance to, to work on skill acquisition and get players healthy and all. Um, they were home rehabbing. Lauren Forte from Cal, they were, you know, Cal was, they, not only did they not play in the fall, they weren't even allowed on campus. Mm-hmm. So she graduates in December and joins us in January. She hadn't touched a ball since the previous fall. Wow. And that's and coming off of a knee injury. So those are all those challenges. But I think I, I give the SEC and honestly the the other leagues that played in the fall a lot of credit because they took a leap of faith to to allow their athletes to play in the fall again without any, you know, the benefit of what others have done and they did it so well by following the protocol and science of the physicians and and the scientists on each of the campuses and then brought it together it wasn't a competition well we're going to try it this way and you try it that way no it was a collaborative effort and i think those weekly phone calls by our sec coaches it created a collaboration of okay how how can we manage this and do this to keep our athletes safe. That was a number one and have our athletes get better. I, I like to think we did a pretty good job. Hmm. How did you manage that two month gap? Again, something you've never had before um, in terms of uh, keeping everybody in, in the right, in the right headspace, keeping them focused, or did you treat it like basically a, a separate season and we're going to have two seasons and then add those up. And that's going to be, you know, what, what we've done for this year. The fall was pretty challenging, again, because we're going through it first, and that's when we were going and tracing, and, and we didn't know the, the protocols of, you know, do you wipe? We were doing things like wiping down the, the pads and the mm. nets, you know, things things that seem like a good idea in August, and they were, um, but, but coming back, you know, months into it, realized, no, this isn't as unsafe as you will, um, as we thought it could be so we got to like re-examine protocols like I said I had a paradigm shift of where I was going to put my focus and the break the players needed a break that fall was hard that was hard to play to play and manage you know now you're going to school Uh, all the classes were you know through zoom and everything was harder in this pandemic that the break actually helped us so we said shut down you go be with your family get clear, take some time, get away. Um, our strength coach has done a phenomenal job. He did with the summer in what was voluntary workouts. And then, and our players, you know, 
it's crazy is how I think our players are in better shape than they've ever been in their entire life through a pandemic in yeah. that nuts. But, but our strength coach did such a terrific job with the players and we've been able to maintain in season physical conditioning. So part of it is more time off. And when they were away, let them be away, let them just re-energize. And so I think they came back in January and, and obviously, Lauren Forte, you've got a new player. We had two early enrollees um, that had been working for a year to graduate early. So the good news is they got to join us. The bad news is they didn't even get to have regular spring competition. Mm-hmm. But I think they gained much more being in our gym and who going up against the likes that they did of you know uh, their own teammates. Um, so three new players changed things, and that's how we, we um, embraced the break. I find it so interesting the way the SEC set this thing up where you played the same team back-to-back days every weekend or every time you went out, um, which in a lot of ways, you look at the schedule, it's got the look of a baseball or softball schedule with weekend series. Um, how much different was it and how challenging was it from, from a coaching, from a preparation standpoint, playing the same team back-to-back as opposed to playing them twice, but maybe it's three or four weeks apart? Well, I can tell you it was embraced to the point where we are adapting a version of it going forward. Hmm. And the reason is, as any SEC coach can tell you, the challenge that we have in our league because of the distant location distance by so many of the schools um, is that when you play one team on a Friday and a, and a different opponent on Sunday, and we're not chartering back you know, from school school to school always um it's easy when it's it's uh maybe uh, auburn georgia very close you know you can make that that's a bus ride but in volleyball those are you're you're watching video you're on the floor practicing that's the only way you prep if you ask basketball to do that you watch how you would wear out your athletes to play on a friday night oh yeah and sunday's matches after you've traveled on saturday watched video and practice and then you play like a one in the afternoon match on Sunday. So you even have less time. When we start, when TV was added, sometimes we'd have a split weekend. We could play at home on a Friday and at Missouri on a Sunday. Florida and Missouri would never be travel partners. They mm-hmm. aren't close. But we were be asked to do that and travel, play on a Friday night, then get up and travel and practice on a Saturday and watch video and and I've maintained that one of the reasons SEC volleyball that no team has won at all is because the athletes are worn out by the end of the season. You're playing a really tough schedule without, you know, if everybody charted everywhere, that'd be different, but that's just not the reality. So I can tell you it was embraced by the, the players playing, playing back to back and it was definitely embraced by the scout coaches mm-hmm. and we saved money. And so when we looked at it going forward, we thought, is there something to this? Maybe we should consider doing this for the future. So what we have proposed is a hybrid schedule. There are not enough weekends to play everybody back to back. Mm -hmm. And we think it's important that you play everybody. So a hybrid schedule, some teams will play only once and some teams we play will play twice. But to your question, could that also be a disadvantage? Sure. You know, I think about in 17, when we went to the national championship match, we lost to Texas or um, Kentucky at home. Three weeks later, we beat them on the road in three. If we didn't have those three weeks in between, we would not have gotten better and, and per- position ourselves for that run. So, yeah, you know, it has its challenges, but I think the good outweighs the bad. Yeah, this past week, there was a you know a lot of public disappointment, I would say, bordering on outrage at the, the plans for this tournament whether it be what ESPN was doing, whether it be the venue. Uh, and, and a lot of coaches spoke up and, and spoke out about it, and, and you were one of them. Um, I, I'm curious, why was it important to you to be a part of that conversation and you know publicly advocate for the tournament to be broadcast in the way that it was, which it's worth noting ESPN did acquiesce to, and it is now happening. So the, the campaign worked, but I'm curious why that was important to you. I think we, you know, we did take a page out of you couldn't you couldn't help but notice the 
response to women's basketball tournament when it was shown that there were some inequities. And you know what? I don't put the, the blame on the NCAA. When I look at the volleyball committee, who each of those people have a full-time job, and they do by they volunteer to be on the volleyball committee and they have to put on a championship in a pandemic in April and trying to create this with 48 teams and a similar venue. I mean, they have done a phenomenal job. My response when we found out that all of the matches, there were going to be cameras there, ESPN cameras, that could they just not broadcast? It seemed like like this could be done. And so, mm-hmm. yes, did I did I tweet something out? I sure did. I don't think my tweet was the reason that the, that ESPN um, stepped up, but I'm really glad they did. I think, in truth, and the NCAA, the volleyball committee in particular, ESPN, I think they all deserve gold stars to figure out. You know, this isn't like the second time that we've we've put on a championship in a pandemic. This is the first. No right. one has ever done this. Everyone is making it up. Now, now, now we get to benefit, though, from, from basketball, where in the fall we didn't get to. So I think it, it, it done a terrific job. The protocols to keep us safe have been, you know, they're in line. And, and I'll tell you this, Adam, we got a bunch of teams staying in the same hotel um, for the athletes. These are people that they, they maybe they've been high school teammates, club teammates. They know them from USA Volleyball. It's kind of fun for them. And I wonder going forward, much like the hybrid schedule for the SEC, if there's something to putting more teams in the same location, maybe pods of eight or, you know, I wonder if we won't even re-examine the championship from this experience. Um, a couple of final questions for you. For for our listeners who, who maybe aren't following the team very closely, but they know there's a championship about to happen and, and they want to plug in, tell us about where your team is now entering this tournament and uh, and how you feel about, you know, where, where you stack up. Well, originally the NCAA tournament was only going to be 32 teams. When, the, when it was announced late summer, we're going to move to the spring and 32 teams only that you did give a number of coaches including me angst because thinking boy you better win it because <laughs> the at-large bids aren't going to be around uh, that was a pretty scary thought and then uh, again the volleyball committee got permission from the championships committee to expand it to expand to 48 and and the board of directors approved it and so grateful for that so we got a top 16 seed which was which was key because that gives you a first round buy. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I'm old enough, probably one of the few coaches playing in this tournament that's old enough to remember when the NCAA tournament years ago was 32. And when you got that first round buy, you were grateful to have the buy, but your first round opponent is coming off of a huge win. Mm-hmm. And the NCAA tournament, it's all about confidence and momentum. And you're coming in from the sidelines, playing a team on a high. That's not easy. I feel fortunate that I've coached in that. I I don't know, you know, how will, when we play the winner of Moorhead State and Creighton, will, you know, can I get our team to match the confidence level that that winner is going to play? Well, I better do the best job I can because that's how it's going to look. And then you have just a couple days turnaround before you play the regionals as opposed to like five days. Okay. That's different. You know, that regionals coming in a hurry. One of the things I was hoping for is that this new schedule would give us a day in between in the regionals, because that's something I think going forward, I'm hoping that the law firm that's looking at gender equity issues will consider is our, our sport at that level, at that round is so excruciatingly physically demanding on the athletes. You got to give them like you could do for basketball a day in between to just rest their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not the case this year. So it's back-to-back matches for the, Region, uh, regional semis and the regional finals. Um, but we are the number eight seed. And right now we are all eyes will go on Moorhead State, Creighton. And of course, and of course, we would get the local team. I swear <laughs> I come to Lincoln and they just come out of the woodwork against the Gators. And that's going to happen once again. It should Creighton win. But we, we watch Moorhead State on video, man, they got some arms. I was so impressed with the arms. That could be a really good match, and we'll be watching that tomorrow to figure out who we're going to play. Hmm. 
Final question for you. We had a chance uh, recently to talk to Becky Burley to do kind of a, you know, this is your life reflection on, on where she's come from, where she's gone, where she's going. Uh, you've, you've known Becky as long as pretty much anyone at Florida. Can you just tell us a little bit about your relationship with her over the course of the last 25 plus years and, uh, and how she's helped you become a, a better coach yourself? Yeah, you can't be around Becky Burley and not become a better person. Um, her willingness, and it's just part of her core values of collaborating and sharing. And Becky's the person that if she just read a great article or saw an inspiring video or heard a speaker, she's going to stop by the office to tell me because um, she's always about sharing. And we have a head coach's thread. We get together on a Zoom call once a month. That's all Becky Burley. She is the one who um, organizes it, enhances it, betters it. She's the one who pays attention to all the other um, teams and how they're doing. So in our thread, mo most every time, I'm going to say nine out of 10 times, when the thread starts congratulating another coach for a big win, a milestone, a championship, Becky starts it. What does it tell you about who she is? I said she is president of Team Gator. I truly believe it. I'm so glad she's not leaving Gainesville. Mm -hmm. um, she's a dear friend who has done a phenomenal job, not only with women's soccer, but creating what is the, the coaching staffs and the support of one another. Um, so much of that threads is through Becky. Well, Coach Wise, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for taking us through you know, this, this, this whole crazy year that you've been through. And uh, we, we hope that it stays crazy and that you're in your hotel for as long as possible now at, at, at this time of year. Yeah, my goal is to stay as, in Omaha as long as Sully does. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank you so much. Good luck. All right. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.